0: The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org.
1: This has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife, And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And when she came in, immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. You may be seated. If you're in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers over by the Kids Zone sign. If it's your child's first time in children's church, please go with them so we can get them checked in.
0: Thanks, John. We've <clears throat> been working our way through Mark you notice the last two or three sermons are a little heavy Because Mark is in these three stories where Jesus is rejected and Jesus is rejected and now John is rejected Mark is making sure that his original audience who was familiar with rejection is making sure that they know that they're not alone that Jesus was rejected too and that John is rejected this is Helpful for us to see. We tend to think that because we're following Jesus, things will always go our way. And John here reminds us that that's not the case. But I want you to hear this. In Matthew 11, Jesus, when talking about his cousin, John the Baptist, will say this. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So we're going to watch the story of John Who had this special birth and this special life calling to get everyone ready for Jesus, get thrown in prison by a madman, by a capricious, dirty old man. We see this moment of doubt from John. We see Jesus' response amidst the tragedy. So we're going to watch very carefully what it looks like when we are rejected. Does God still move? Let's pray and ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you and praise you for your word and your Holy Spirit. And I ask that in these moments this morning, those who are weary of suffering and rejection would be lifted up and embraced and encouraged. For those of us who are still dabbling, dabbling with what, we think about this Jesus of Nazareth, would you bring resolve and humble nudges for them? God, for those of us who don't understand how how we're supposed to make sense of some of the struggles in our life, and you're supposed to be in control, I pray that you would bring hope. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The story is about the death of a conscience. Somebody who like John the Baptist preaching, even enough to protect his life. He was perplexed by what John would say, but he also wanted to hear more of it. It's a story of conscience. When I was preparing for this week, I listened to a sermon by Frank Hitchings, a friend of mine, and he talked about the greatest story of conscience that we know, Pinocchio. Pinocchio, be a good little boy and always let your conscience be your guide. Pinocchio is the story of this Geppetto, this one who works with wood and he makes a marionette, he makes a doll, a little boy. He's so lonely, he wants to be a father and he makes a doll. And because he's made it out of magic wood and because the blue fairy blesses it, it turns into this person that's alive, Pinocchio, Pinocchio is supposed to be a good little boy, to follow his conscience. That's what the blue fairy keeps telling him. In fact, the blue fairy even tells him that Pinocchio is going to experience temptation. Did you know that was in there? This cute little kid story? It's about conscience and temptation. And Pinocchio asked, what is temptation? And the answer is this, they're the wrong things that seem right at the time. They're the wrong things that seem right at the time. What we learn from Pinocchio is that even though he has a conscience, he keeps lying anyway. That's how his nose gets so big. Even Herod knows what's right. He does what he wants anyway. And that's what cost John his life. And if I were to look at you and tell you, you know what's right, friends. You know what's right. Follow your conscience. Just listen to your conscience that would be of no help to you because you know what's wrong and sometimes you're going to do it anyway. This morning we get to see this study of a conscience that's coming unraveled. One who trusts in Jesus and has doubt. One who doesn't trust in Jesus and unravels. Remember, part of why this story is so powerful is that Mark's audience, Mark's original audience, they would have been the Christians who just became Christians, not long after Jesus' death and resurrection, just became Christians, and now Rome is after them and trying to persecute them, trying to kill them. And can you imagine what comfort it would be to be a new Roman Christian, and you're having to run, you're having to hide, and everything is different and more difficult, and you go to read the stories of Jesus, the one that you're following, and you find this story. That following Jesus actually means that you'll be rejected, actually means that things will be difficult. There's validation for the audience who read a story of Jesus and remember that it's a story of rejection. We also see this this vignette, and Mark likes to do this, Mark likes to take one story and point it towards the larger story. We see this innocent one who's thrown in prison and is not supposed to die, and yet he dies. And so the story must all fall apart after that, right? And Mark is getting us ready for just a few more chapters when there's an innocent one who's not supposed to suffer, and instead he gets thrown into jail, thrown into prison, and he dies. And it's all supposed to come unraveled after that, right? Mark is causing us to slow down and pay careful attention to what and who it is that we believe. Rejecting Jesus messes with us. Well, first, let's start with John the Baptist. Instead of Herod, let's start with John the Baptist. Let me give you some backstory. John the Baptist, if you remember, is Jesus' cousin. Remember? Remember? Way back in the early parts of the gospel, John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. In fact, when Mary, pregnant with Jesus, walks into a room, John the Baptist in his mommy's tummy leaps. It's his first pointing of, this is the one that we're ready for. John is Jesus' cousin. And John spends this life of self-denial. And And courage, telling people the truth, even when it's hard and calling the nation of Israel to repent, to say, the one is coming, the one is here. The one who can save you from your sins, the one who can forgive you, the one who can put your life back together, that one is here. And then here we find this little vignette about John the Baptist in Matthew 11. Listen to this. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. Listen, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Friends, it's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, and you're gonna hear me quote it a lot. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now remember, John from his childhood knows that his whole life is about telling everyone that he, Jesus, is the one to come. That Jesus is the one who will redeem the people. Jesus is the one who will forgive them for their sins. Jesus is the one who will give them hope and a future. His job was to go and get the rest of the world ready for Jesus. And yet over the last months john gets arrested and thrown into prison and he's experiencing loneliness he's 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 a mess and he was experiencing getting the world ready for jesus and he can't do that anymore because he's in jail and in this moment of sad somber honesty he sends word to his cousin he hears jesus out and about preaching and doing things And here I am, rotting in prison. In a moment of honest, somber doubt, he sends word to his cousin and says, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? He's like, cuz. You made my whole life about you. You made my whole life about getting everyone ready for you, about all the wonderful things that you're doing. And now here I am, alone and in jail. In other words, John is saying this. I'm doing the right thing, so how could I possibly be losing? I'm doing the right thing, so how could we possibly be losing? And Christian, I tell you that because there are going to be times as you follow Jesus where you're saying, I did the right thing. I obeyed I followed I listened I spoke up I did the right thing and because I did the right thing I'm losing how does that work and for those of us who feel that way I want you to hear this and I say it with tenderness because I've been there too what did you expect you're going to get more tenderness in a second but hang in there what did you expect Mark is telling the story to a group of people who will be eaten by lions on display to mock Christianity. And he writes the story and organizes it in such a way so that when they read, they think, yes, following Jesus is good and it is right, but it's going to hurt. And then he tells the story of John, Jesus' own cousin. If you feel like you're doing the right thing and yet you're losing anyway, what did you expect? It's a story of Jesus' family rejects him, Jesus' hometown rejects him, Jesus' people of Israel reject him, and they reject his servant. The whole story is one of rejection. If you're doing the right thing and get rejected, welcome to the family. What did you expect? Well, that's the convicting side, but here's the comforting side. Look at how tender Jesus is with John. Look at how tender Jesus is with John. This is what he says. John says, Remember, and this all takes place between messengers. He can't text him, just messengers, and you've got to wait on the response. And he's just sent to Jesus Are you the one who's to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus sends some of his own disciples to go tell John, and he says this, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Look at the news, the gentleness that Jesus sends back to John. And it lets us know that Jesus is tender and gentle with our doubts when we bring them to him. Jesus is tender and gentle with our doubts when we bring them to him. John does not understand. John is confused. John is perplexed. And he goes to Jesus with his doubts. And look at how tender Jesus is. In Jude 22, we'll find the verse, be merciful to those who doubt. Jesus' posture towards those who find it difficult to believe in a God at work and a broken story like this says, be merciful, of course it's hard to believe. And he has that tenderness for you and your doubts. Remember that verse, Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Jesus says that about John after John doubts him. After, John doubts him. He doubts him in Matthew eleven three to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus sends back someone. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, blessed are... The dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. That's verse 6. When he makes it to verse 11, he says, Truly I tell you, among those born of woman, there has not risen anyone greater than John. Jesus understands it's hard to believe. Jesus understands when you look at your life and you're trying to do the right thing and you feel rejected because of it, that that's confusing and that that can cause doubt. And when you take that doubt to him, he deals with you tenderly. Friends, the whole story is one of rejection and loss. The nearer you are to Jesus, the more engaged you are in his kingdom, the more loss that you will feel. And I know that's hard news, but it's also validating news. If you're walking around limping and can't seem to figure out why, this is why. Carol Ann and Teron Ferguson, who are here this morning, they're on the front lines of the kingdom in the Choices Pregnancy Center. You think the devil wants them doing their jobs well? I bet he's after them all the time, slings and arrows. And I bet you that they have taken hits. I bet you it's been harder on them than they would ever burden us with. And they're still here. You see, when you stand on the front line, you will take hits. But remember, when you take those hits, it reminds you why you're standing on the front lines. John is in prison because of his belief in Jesus, because of his preaching in Jesus. Things are harder for him because he will not relent. When you feel rejection and when you feel lost, I want you to remember that Jesus can handle your doubts when you take them to him. And that maybe the reason that you're struggling is because you, like the audience of Mark, you, like John the Baptist, because you're following Jesus, things are going to be harder sometimes. This is Mark 6 and Mark 8 we'll hear. If anyone would follow me, he must deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. In the present, we expect ease, but we get suffering. So that's John. A man doing the right things, following the right king, even amidst his own doubts, pushing towards and engaging with Jesus when he doesn't understand. And here we see Herod. A man in drastic... Contrast. You see, rejecting Jesus messes with us. Look again with me in verse 14. King Herod had heard of it, for Jesus' name had come, become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like the prophets of old. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. So essentially, Jesus sends out the 12th, and everybody starts whispering about, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is this guy? And some are like, I know, it's Elijah. I know it's a prophet of old, but King Herod, King Herod remembers John the Baptist and he has this eerie, creepy thought. Maybe Jesus is John the Baptist, the guy that I killed, the guy that I beheaded, come back to life. And Mark knows his audience may not know that whole story. So he hits the pause button and he tells the story of when John is killed by Herod. The reason that I I point that out to you, that it's told in two parts, sort of Herod's fear about John the Baptist and Jesus, and then the story of all that Herod had done wrong, is Herod has multiple times to repent. Herod has multiple times to repent. He could repent here in these first three verses, which would be in the future. It's, it's, It's as if he remembers what he did to John and ultimately to Jesus, he remembers what he did and he says, ah, I've got to change. He feels conviction and he doesn't repent. And then while he's engaging with John, the the story that he thinks back on, you see the different times throughout the story that he could have repented. And the reason that it's so important for you and me to see that is there is some sense that there's always time. There's time down the road I'm going to have my fun now. There's time down the road. I want to think what I think now. And then I'll think about other things later. Maybe when I grow up more. Maybe when there's more time. We always conclude that there's more time down the road. But what we see from Herod's story is heart keeps getting harder and harder, not softer and softer. He's confronted with the reality of God. And his conscience gets duller, duller and more numb. He knew he had done something wrong. You see it? Some of us know that we have done things wrong. We know that we have not lived a right way. We've got that conviction. But for him and some of us, that doesn't mean that we've turned and repented. You feeling generally bad about something that you've done wrong is not the same thing as following Jesus. Herod knows he messed up and he's still not following Jesus. And it's not that Herod didn't have the opportunity of good preaching. Herod had to, got to listen to John the Baptist, a humble man, a passionate guy, a guy who was constantly pointing to Jesus. Tim Keller says this, in the ways that we can learn from John the Baptist, he says this, John is clear illustration of the ways in which the Christian Is supposed to live and serve in the world. A clear witness, sorry, a clear Christian witness will be both attractive and repulsive to non-believers. If we only get resistance but never attract anyone to Jesus, or if we only attract people but never get rejected for Jesus, or if we get we never get attraction or rejection. Then we aren't living with its integrity. Listen to this. Here's how he closes it. If we are both loving and truthful, we will both attract and repulse like John did. It's so convicting for us as Christians because some of us just want to be truth tellers. It's the people that I was telling you about earlier that that they know that they're right, and so they want to hit you with it like a hammer again and again. And that's being truthful without being loving. And some of us want to be loving and love on people and encourage them and be hospitable and be welcoming and absolutely never getting around to telling them the truth. John the Baptist models for us here, as Keller points us to, you've got to be both. You've got to be loving and compassionate. Remember, Herod wants to hear what John the Baptist says. They have this like friendship. He says he was perplexed by what he said, but he also loved hearing him. Well, when he gets around him, John the Baptist is like, you are not allowed to have your brother's wife. Keep telling me, man, just keep telling me. John had some way of letting him know that I'm telling you this because I care for you. I'm telling you this because I want more for you. I want better for you. And so John manages to somehow, and we we can't see it perfectly, but John manages to to mix this truth and this love In one testimony. See, Herod had been convicted and it wasn't enough to change him. Herod had good preaching and it wasn't enough to change him. Herod's story is a mess. I want you to hear this. Herodias, so Herod's wife in this story. Herodias is both, sorry, all three things. Herodias is Herod's wife It's his sister-in-law and it's his niece. That is a classy dude. Herod's wife is his wife, his sister-in-law, and his niece. Here's how Kent Hughes says it. Herodias was the daughter of Herod's half-brother. This is the niece. The daughter of Herod's half-brother, Aristobulus. And thus, that's Herod's niece. Further. When he meets his niece in Rome, she was the wife of another of his half-brothers, Herod the Philip, and therefore his sister-in-law. He is living for himself and himself alone. And what I want you to see here is that there could be a sense in which we think Herod is too bad of a guy to have any conviction. Herod is too messed up to have any sort of sense of right and wrong. But that's not true. There was hope for Herod. He's got the best preacher of his time, spending time with him. Herod wants to hear more from him. If you think you're in too messed up up of a situation to hear God draw you to him, friends, look at Herod's life. Look at Herod's life. God will go after you regardless of how messy your situation is. But John's telling him the truth. But part of John's saying, you can't have your wife slash niece slash sister-in-law. It's not allowed. According to Israel's tradition, according to the Bible, you can't do this. But part of what John is also doing is telling Herod, Herod so badly wanted to be king. So badly wanted to be king his dad was king, and then that kingdom kind of got s- split up among three kings. And he so much wanted to be the king, the king of Israel, the, the king who was to come, the, the Messiah, if you will. And John is letting Herod know, hey, John, there is a Messiah. Excuse me. John is letting Herod know, hey, Herod, there is a Messiah, and it ain't you. And we see Herodias just wants him dead. Herod's torn. He likes to listen to John. He has this rapport with John. He is perplexed by what he says, but he loves to hear him teach. He's conflicted, but not Herodias. She just wants him dead. She is tired of being reminded of her mistakes. She is tired of being reminded about the truth. And friends, you will encounter people in this world who don't want to hear about the Bible who don't want to hear about Jesus, who don't want to hear about sin, who don't want to hear about forgiveness. They just want you to be quiet. Their conscience is already seared. They just want us to go away. Actually, all of us are like that. There's some sense in which we know that there's more to life than just what we see, and yet we're constantly trying to put it away, put it off. So there are those that we'll encounter that just want to get rid of Jesus. But more dangerously for our generation, there are those like Herod who want to bring Jesus, bring Jesus out or bring John the Baptist out, have him tell a few stories, have give a few lessons, let us think a little bit, let's engage philosophically about this. And when we're done and we don't want to think about it anymore, we'll send him back to his cell. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're intrigued by this Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe you like his stories. You like the preaching. You like, you like the themes of the Bible. But when it's inconvenient for you or it gets in your way, you just put them put aside and put him away. Back to the cell he goes. And part of what we're supposed to understand is 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 that the more that we do that, the more we say, I heard what I have to hear, I heard the conviction, I heard the word, I've thought about it and i put it away. What we don't understand is that we're actually numbing our conscience a little bit more until it's dead. Meaning you don't get a fresh take each time. When you turn it down, your heart gets a little harder. When we turn it down again, your heart gets a little harder. You're not more likely to believe it later than you are right now. You're not more likely. Think about this. Look in verse 26. After he's asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter, the king was exceedingly sorry. Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. The king was exceedingly sorry. We see in sort of real time, in the first few verses, he's starting to feel conviction because he's the one who killed John. Then it flashes back to the story in in the past, if you will, and it just shows that someone asked for John's head and he feels exceedingly sorry. He's so sad about it. The other time we hear these words in Mark or in the sorry, in the New Testament, exceedingly sorry, is when Jesus is pleading with God in the, in the garden, exceedingly distressed. So here, here it is. He's exceedingly distressed. We'll see in the future he has another chance at conviction, but right here in the present, he's exceed, he has the chance. He knows, this is the guy who tells me the truth. this is the guy who I'm interested in his stories. I'm exceedingly distressed but he still doesn't make the right move. The reason that I tell you that is you, like Herod, can know you've done the wrong thing and it not lead you to repent, follow Jesus. You can be in the midst of about to do the wrong thing and know it's the wrong thing and it's still not enough to cause you to repent and follow Jesus. He can't get past what others will think of him. What will my wife say who's been wanting to kill this guy for so long? What will my guest say who just saw this naughty little dance and she asked me for the head and if I don't give it, I look like I, I don't keep my word. People will be laughing about me. And what he ends up doing is choosing what other people will think more than his own serious conviction. He's sad, he's sorry. He has this moment to repent and obey and believe and instead he chooses what other people will think about him. We're like this too, with our family, their friends, with our coworkers, the people we hang out with. We do feel conviction, but not enough conviction to speak out. We're like Michael Scott. Do I need to be liked? Absolutely not. I like to be liked I enjoy being liked. I have to be liked. But it's not like this compulsive need to be liked, like my need to be praised. (laughs) Christian, you will be put in moments where you have to decide whether you're going to follow your conscience, follow your convictions, or whether it's just easier to be liked. And we see what John does with that and we see what Herod does with that. For those of you who don't know, don't trust, don't linger in your head about sermons and spiritual thoughts and challenges from the Word and the Holy Spirit and then put it away to think about it another time. Your heart is getting harder. Today is the day. We know that his heart is getting harder because in Luke 23, Herod, many of the commentators pointed this out to me this week, Herod shows up again in the Bible. We see him here in this moment where he's feeling sorrow over him putting John to death. And then we see this story where he was sorrowful about the idea of putting John to death, but he goes ahead with it anyway. And then we'll see Herod later on down the road. Later on down the road, what, what would become of Herod? You see, Herod always wanted to meet Jesus, probably because of his relationship with John. John would tell him about Jesus. Herod always wanted to meet Jesus. And in Luke 23, we finally get to see Jesus encountering Herod. You see, Herod, Jesus has been arrested and he's sent to Herod. And Herod gets this moment that he's been longing for, this moment to, to engage with Jesus. And Herod starts Firing these questions at Jesus. You can imagine that there's so much in that. He's firing questions at Jesus. Probably some about his old friend John. Probably some about who Jesus says he is. Probably some about this, you say you're a king, but I'm the king. Herod is throwing questions at Jesus. And you know what Jesus says? Nothing. Nothing. It's as if Jesus is looking at him and saying, you had The greatest man that existed, teaching you and telling you. You had the greatest man with you, getting you ready for me. And you know what you did? You killed my cousin. Sinclair Ferguson says this, in the end, God had no more to say to Herod. This Herod who used to like listening to John the Baptist. And when Jesus won't answer his questions, Herod and the other ruler start mocking Jesus. So this is what's become of his heart. Sorrow over killing John. Distress over the thought of killing John. Wanting to meet Jesus. And what's happened to his heart? He's mocking Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson continues and says this, the lesson here is crystal clear. Unless we silence sin, sin will silence our conscience. Unless we heed God's word, the day may come when we despise God's son. And then God will have nothing more to say to us. We'll close here. Do so you see the rejection? And even John the Baptist is confused, but it goes to the right person. You see the rejection of Herod, that hearing good teaching isn't enough to get you to follow Jesus. And feeling sorrow over your sin isn't again enough to get you to follow Jesus. In fact, the longer you wait, the harder your heart becomes. But this is also a story about hope amid tragedy. You're a tired, lonely, gaunt Christian on the run from Romans. And you sit down and you read this story. And every from, everything from the outside goes wrong here. The good guy dies. The dirty old man wins. Manipulation seems to overrule character and witness. And the reason Mark wants you to see what John wants you to see is the story isn't over here yet. Yes, they're going to come and they're going to lay John's body in a tomb. And what do you think Mark is trying to get you to think of? They're going to lay John's body in a tomb because there's another story coming where Jesus' friends will all disappear into the night, where Jesus will go it alone and hang on a cross for your sin and for my sin. He will take all the punishment, the wrath that is due you and me so that there will be no wrath left over for you and me. And then Jesus' friends, you know what they'll do? They'll lay him in a tomb. And the readers of Mark will sit there and think, John was laid in a tomb and now Jesus is laid in a tomb. And then they'll remember when Jesus is laid in that tomb, friends, the story isn't over yet. The story isn't over yet. We lose hope and yet hope is not finished yet. And I want you to take that reality to your own story When things seem like everything is lost and you've laid your hopes, your dreams, your visions, your life, your desires for what's coming for you, when you've laid them in a tomb, I want you to pause and remind yourself maybe the story's not over yet. It's the beauty of the Christian story. Let's pray. Father, for the John the Baptists in this room who feel like they were doing the right thing and they're getting hit anyway, would you bring them encouragement? That they're getting hit is actually validation that they're doing something right and that they're allowed to doubt because Jesus is tender tender with those that doubt. And for the Herods in the room who are convicted by their sin, who think that there's something to this Jesus stuff, but then put it away for another hour, would you bring kind, clear resolve? Today is the day. And for those of us who are standing on the outside of a tomb, because we've just put our dreams, or our hopes, or our thought of what this world was gonna be like, and we've just laid it in the tomb, would you remind us and give us hope? The story is not over yet. It's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Our hopes, our thought of what this world was going to be like, and we've just laid it in the tomb. Would you remind us and give us hope that the story is not over yet. It's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.